Today we are facing some of the greatest challenges of our lives, from our health to political unrest, the environment, financial uncertainty, and the nation's racial divide. Welcome to Bill Myers Inspires. My idea for this show was to invite guests and get the conversation started, to take a deep dive into the issues that impact our world with an eye to exploring solutions. And we encourage our listeners to look within themselves to take decisive action to make a positive difference. Welcome to Bill Myers Inspires. I'm your host, Bill Myers, and I am very excited today, as I am every week, uh, to present uh, a lively discussion on uh, on topics that matter to us very much today. We are still in our focus on racism in America, and I'm going to sort of set up the description for today's show. Uh, the title of today's show is Racism and Faith Leaders with my special guest, Dr. John Dorhauer. In America today, what is the role of faith leaders in addressing the divisive political climate, racism, and white privilege? What does manifesting white privilege look like, and how must faith leaders and others work to dismantle it? As I do every week, I like to begin the show with a quote, and I would like to go to that right now. And my quote is from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless night, midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. Those words from the great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Our guest today is the Reverend Dr. John Dorhauer. We have had him on before, uh, actually about three weeks ago, and uh, we just couldn't get enough. Actually, we, we wound up in a conversation and it was so compelling, uh, but I realized that we had only really scratched the surface and that we needed to uh, revisit this, particularly in this time in America where we are facing um, a very important election cycle. Um, and I think that it is most important that we get this information out and have these conversations now um, in hopes that it may resonate with some of our listeners and uh, give them some further insight. So uh, Dr. John Dorhauer, author and theologian, currently serves as the ninth general minister and president of the United Church of Christ. John began his ministry serving First Congregational United Church of Christ and Zion United Church of Christ in rural Missouri. He then served as Associate Conference Minister in the Missouri Mid-South Conference and then Conference Minister of the Southwest Conference of the UCC prior to his election as General Minister and President. Dorhauer received a BA in Philosophy from Cardinal Glennon College and has a Master of Divinity degree from Eden Theological Seminary. The same year, John was ordained in the United Church of Christ. 
John received a Doctor of Ministry degree from the United Theological Seminary in 2004. His area of focus, white privilege and its effects on the church. With a personal theology shaped in the passionate conviction that God is love and God is just, John has embodied the United Church of Christ's vision of a just world for all throughout his ministry. On October 17, 2014, Dorhauer conducted the first legal same-sex wedding in the state of Arizona when he performed the wedding services of David Lawrence and Kevin Patterson. In his first term as general minister and president, recognizing increasing sensitivities in this country around race, John initiated the collaborative creation of a curriculum, White Privilege, Let's Talk, a resource for transformational dialogue. Designed to invite UCC members and others to engage in safe, meaningful, substantive, and bold conversations on race, the curriculum and accompanying facilitator's guide have been both used by the UCC and non-UCC audiences. Please help me welcome our guest today, Dr. John Dorhauer. Welcome, John. Bill, thank you. Uh, I enjoyed being here last time, and it'll be a delight to have another conversation with you. Well, thank you so much, because there is so much there, and I know we ran out of time before we <laughs> smashed into the clock, so I apologize yeah. again. So today, I, I, I want to sort of unpack this topic. Um, racism and faith leaders is, is, is sort of the, the uh, mm -hmm. uh, title that I had put on this discussion. So I, I just want to sort of start there. Re faith leaders and what is that role that faith leaders have uh, to, to lead us through uh, the tough topics of, of racism today? So I think that faith leaders aren't the drivers of the bus. I think, and part of that is, and I'm speaking now from the the point of view of a white faith leader in a predominantly white denomination. Mm -hmm. the, to be perfectly honest, it is faith leaders that fueled what we know today to be white privilege and racism and white power and white supremacy. Hmm. Um, from the moment we landed on these shores, and by we, I'm now talking again about whites, when Christopher Columbus landed, mm -hmm. he had in his hands a document entitled the Requeriamento. It was a document written by the Pope or the Pope's minions mm -hmm. that articulated the church's belief that all lands belong to God. And the Pope being God's highest emissary here on earth, therefore all lands belonged to the Pope and to Christ. And this theological doctrine is what fueled colonialism. Mm. And so Christopher Columbus held this document. He was sent here by the king and queen of Spain, Ferdinand and Isabella, who were in alliance with the Pope and who themselves were after the riches that could be accrued as the world was colonialized. But the Pope wanted the, uh, the, the souls and the lands to claim as his own. And so in his hands was this document. 
given to him by the king and queen of Spain and the, the Pope mm -hmm. called the Requeriamento. And as he landed, he would unfold this and have somebody read this to the natives they would encounter. Now, that they didn't speak the language didn't matter. The document written in Latin talked about this land belongs to the Pope who claims it, and I am here on his behalf to claim it. And it told the natives that they only had a short period of time to confess their belief in Jesus and turn the land over to its rightful owner, the Pope, or, and then there was language in there about we will, we are empowered to enslave your women and children, to take your livestock and your land. And it had examples of other places around the globe that were conquered where they immediately converted and all was good and happy and right. Wow. So there was not a time when whites occupied this land where the church itself was not an agent of the racism that exists today. And you will recall, Bill, as many of your listeners will, that historic sermons were preached from the pulpit of white churches by white Christian pastors about the need for white people to control their black slaves. That the slaves and black people and Native Americans and really any people of color were inferior and that it was our God-given, not right, but responsibility to educate them to the extent that they were able and to bear the fruits of their labor for the glory of God. Wow. And while Blacks were allowed to be baptized, they would have their own churches. They would, they would if they entered a, a white church, they would have to sit up in the balcony removed from everybody else and listen week after week after week to sermons preached about the inferiority of the black race. Not unlike what many homosexuals endure when they walk into a church today. Yeah. So when we begin to talk about the role of faith leaders, we have to interrogate the role that the white church has played in perpetuating and instantiating racism as the law of the land. That there are white faith leaders today who are aligned with justice and with equity is without a doubt. But again, I want to be very clear, it's not white faith leaders who need to be driving this bus. Mm. We are important allies and partners. And, and because we have a passive audience every week listening to us preach the gospel, we have a role to play. And being allies is important, but you must also be critical of any ally who has not done the work of dismantling their privilege or mm. unpacking their racism. Okay. So, so, so how do we move, how do we move through this as faith leaders at this point? I mean, given that history, yeah. uh, I mean, how do faith leaders today or how should they begin at least the process of, uh, first of all, acknowledge, acknowledging <laughs> that, that, that the responsibility of much of the perpetuation of racism societally is largely uh, their uh, you know, you, you know what I mean? It, it's yeah. they're a part of that. 
So, so how, what is that turnaround? How is, how does that look? Yeah. I mean, for today's faith leaders to engage that, because uh, I would imagine most don't know what you just said. I, I will, I would you know argue. that most don't many though are, are becoming receptive to hearing things that they would not been willing to hear five or 10 years ago. Okay. Fair enough. And I think there are two things that I will cite that helps us begin this work and wrap our heads around the role of white faith leaders. Okay. The first is this, it's a quote from a book by Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman was a black preacher, 1950s, 1960s, uh, was a chaplain at one of the Ivy League schools. I'll, if I try to remember which one, I know I'll get it wrong. But he was also the founder of the Church of All Peoples in San Francisco, a truly integrated congregation way ahead of its time. Yes. And a profound spiritualist and author. Um, and in his book written about the history of the Negro spirituals, mm -hmm. he closes that book with this line by some remarkably creative and superior insight. The slave undertook the redemption of a religion the master had profaned. Mm. The slave undertook the redemption of a religion the master had profaned. In other words, the master gave the slave the master's religion and the slaves came to accept Jesus, but they read the Bible and the gospel through liberation lenses, which mm. whites in power never use. That's a lens they never use. God is here to forgive the sin and redeem me from my sin. That's the white man's religion. Mm -hmm. But the slave understood that in the story of the Exodus, in the story of Moses, which begins with that powerful, let my people go, yeah. and the confrontation of the enslaving Pharaoh, the slaves saw in the master's religion the seeds of a faith that could give them strength to endure, and thus that the Negro spiritual. All of that, Bill, is to suggest that one of the pathways through this is for white dominant leaders to take, if you'll pardon the metaphor, the back seat on the bus, get out of the way, and let the descendants of those slaves who began to undertake the redemption of a religion we had profaned begin to articulate their faith and their theology. That's the first thing. The second I take from my mentor, and I know we're coming up on a break, so maybe we'll save this till after the break. Okay. Well, you know, you, you've, you've got my attention and everyone else, uh, John, again, this is, this is important stuff. And I'm, I'm so grateful for you sharing this. You are listening to Bill Myers Inspires right here on the Inspired Choices Network. I'm here with my guest today, Dr. John Dorhauer. We'll be right back in just a moment. Today, we are facing some of the greatest challenges of our lives, from our health to political unrest, the environment, financial uncertainty, and the nation's racial divide. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Bill Myers Inspires as he and his guests take a deep dive into the issues that impact our world with an eye to exploring solutions. Emmy Award-winning actor Bill Myers is an accomplished actor, jazz musician, filmmaker, writer, educator, and speaker. As a biracial man who's both black and white, 
Bill leverages his background, talent, and voice through creativity, compassion, and connection as activism for social justice to focus on uniting the divide and compelling change. Bill Myers Inspires encourages listeners to look within themselves and take decisive action to make a positive difference. For more information, visit his website, BillMyersInspires.com, and sign in for the latest news and updates. Are you a subject matter expert? Are you here to share your expertise with an audience waiting to hear from you in only the way you can deliver? Are you ready to have your voice amplified across the airwaves? Inspired Choices Network has a global radio platform streaming to millions of people across the world. Professionally produced and supported by an accomplished team every step of the way, you can broadcast from anywhere in the world knowing your voice matters and we ensure it is delivered with ease and efficiency. Eager to hear your message, the world awaits. Contact us today to become an Inspired Choices Network radio host. Email becomeahost at inspiredchoicesnetwork.com. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires here on the Inspired Choices Network. We're here every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you for joining us. And now, let's get back to the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires, and I am in the midst of a great conversation with Dr. John Dorhauer, the General Minister and President of the United Church of Christ. Uh, we were just exploring steps that faith leaders can take today to assist uh, with combating racism or dealing with that. And so you had just cited uh, a first step uh, in, in a, I believe, a, a series of three steps that you were recommending the first step was sort of to take a, a back seat uh, for faith leaders white uh, faith leaders today to take a back seat and allow the um, uh, African-American uh, black uh, leaders of faith to to uh, move to the forefront and to uh, to to uh, advise and and sort of take the lead on how we can we can uh, resolve these matters so now we are on to step number two, and I hope if, if you need to correct my articulation of step one, feel free to to uh, add something to that. But I, I love the way you uh, wrapped that up. That was beautiful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and step two is is much harder for whites than step one. And let's not be naive. Step one's not going to be easy for whites. They, they're not used to not driving the bus. Right. Um, and they're not conditioned to believe that they should. So step two is gonna be even harder. And it comes from a metaphor used by the man I call my spiritual father, the Reverend Dr. Sam Mann, who was the professor that taught white privilege studies at United Theological Seminary in 2004. Mm -hmm. He was a white man who grew up in Eufaula, Alabama, uh, who ended up rejecting the white culture that raised him and spending most of his life deeply embedded in the black culture. Uh, the first white man to be elected as the president of one of the chapters of the 
uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SCLC. Mm -hmm. And he preached what he called his sweet potato pie sermon. And it's that metaphor that I want to set up as the second step for white faith leaders to take okay. as allies and agents of transformation. Having grown up in the South, Sam knows what a hankering is. And he starts his sermon, his sweet potato pie sermon, by talking about a literal hankering he got driving down the streets of Kansas City, where he served as a pastor for over 40 years. And he knew enough about a hankering not to ignore it. So he literally did a U-turn in four lanes of traffic on one of the busiest streets in Kansas City and drove back to his house where he had a piece of sweet potato pie waiting for him on the counter. And he took that, poured himself a nice cold glass of milk, took the first bite of pie and spat it out. It was rotten. It had rotted while sitting out on the counter. Mm -hmm. And he knew that he wasn't going to take a second bite. Right. And he does a great job setting this up and telling this story. And then he always asks his audience, what would you have me add to that piece of rotten pie to convince me to take the second bite, fresh eggs, fresh sugar, fresh milk, fresh potatoes. And everybody knows there's only one answer to that question. You throw it out mm -hmm. because it's rotten and you're going to get sick and it tastes awful and nothing you add to it's going to change that. Right, right. And all of that's wonderful. And here's the point, Bill. His metaphor for the white church is a sweet potato pie that's rotten to the core that is, I articulated a minute ago, from the moment they landed on these shores was, was infiltrated with white supremacist ideology that never left it. And what whites have been trying to do is add fresh sugar and fresh milk and, and fresh ingredients to a rotten pie, mm. and it doesn't work. There might be a point at which you look at what you've added and see that is fresh and new. But once you get underneath that, what you see is still rotten. Yeah. So yeah. what whites need to do is not just take the back seat on the bus, but abandon any hope that they can reform the church that they built on these shores. You've got to throw it away and you've got to start over. And that's the second thing that I think uh, will lead to uh, a, a, a much more robust vision of racial equity. And what whites and white faith leaders in the white church must realize is they remain one of the most significant impediments to racial equity left, either because there are still vestiges of overt racism in our midst, or because what we've added to try and displace that isn't sufficient, that the roots are still rotten. Mm -hmm. So that's the second thing. And then the, the third thing we've developed in the United Church of Christ, and you referred to it in your introduction, a set of resource materials for faith communities, uh, predominantly white, but not exclusively white, to use to carry on conversations about white privilege, whether it's that curriculum or not. Um, whites not only have to take a backseat on the bus, whites not only have to be prepared to let go of the vessel that we've built for our faith and let something else emerge, truly let what Howard Thurman said was already going on evolve, and that is 
is, is let the slaves and the descendants of slaves redeem the religion that we profaned. But we also have to begin to understand the manifestations and impact of our privilege and begin to become active agents of dismantling that. Um, otherwise, we will remain not only impediments to what is being built and evolving for the common good, but we will continue to believe that our place as we now occupy it is, is the place that we deserve. And so without coming to awareness of how privilege manifests itself in whites in the impact that it has on others, we're just going to repeat the behaviors over and over and over again. Yeah, you cannot, it, it cannot, it cannot be fixed. You know, it's interesting, the sweet potato pie uh, analogy. I, I, I've been, I've been working on a, a metaphorical sort of explanation in my thoughts about the United States Constitution and our American yeah. laws. And uh, we, we are running a parallel there because I am, I've, I've been, I think I've gotten it to, uh, a cake that was made with rotten eggs. And so, um, you know, and, and the slices of that cake being the institutions. So it doesn't really matter. And so no mat no amount of sprinkles, you know, snickers and, and, and cream. It's just not going to get it done, man. This is, this is gross and it needs to be thrown out and, yeah. and start again. We're, we're due for a fresh start. And I believe that we are capable as, yes. as human beings to, to create a better, uh, a, a more perfect union. Um, a perfect union. Yeah, I believe that it is possible. And um, and we're also smart enough to recognize what was in that original document that we wanted that we treasure and want to hold on to. Yeah, so yeah. It's not like you lose everything, but when you begin a document defining inhabitants, some of the inhabitants of this land is three fifths human. Yeah, yeah. You you can't change that and make it good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's something. <laughs> something inherently wrong there for sure. So, so, so I appreciate us being able to walk through and try to figure out those three steps that faith leaders, um, and I would imagine that extends beyond just faith leaders, that, that probably mm -hmm. goes to the believers as well, um, yeah. to be able to take those same steps, being led, of course, by our faith leaders into that. Um, so next, I wanted to... Um, take a look at our current connection and uh, the election cycle yeah. and what has happened with the, the uh, that whole divisive thing that has somehow aligned itself. Uh, uh, I don't know if it's strangely or based on the, the, uh, uh, the explanation that you just gave, or if it was, if it stands to reason that the Republican and the sort of evangelical and, and however that's couched, I, I don't want to, I'm not big on labels per se, and I certainly don't want to vilify any groups of people. I am trying to understand and get my arms wrapped around it just as everyone else is. And hopefully through these conversations, we can get a little closer or better understanding. I'm, I'm open to learning myself um, about this and hope that we're be we're able to offer something. So, so I guess that I want to let's let's I'm going to give you an opportunity to sort of open up uh, an, an angle on and an analysis of of what's going on in our current uh, political divide. And then we'll have to get to a break and then we'll we'll dive in a little deeper. But go ahead. and So we'll tease a couple of things before the break. Um, the, the seeds of 
the racism evident in the Republican Party, I mean, they go back a long way, but there are also seeds that were planted within the last generation or two. Um, and there are a couple of things that are of note here. Um, the birth of neoconservatism neo in the Republican Party has racist roots. Michelle A. Alexander's work is, I think, one of the most important scholarly pieces recently, um, her work on mass incarceration. As the latest iteration by neoconservatives to disenfranchise uh, black citizens in the US, um, that's within the last generation but it's repetitive of strategies and behaviors that whites have consistently developed throughout their history. And labels don't work easily because there's just as much racism in the progressive wing of the liberal democratic party as there is in the, uh, the conservative wing and neoconservative wing of the Republican party. Um, but as we're going into break, I think the important thing to recognize and what we can talk about afterwards is that mm -hmm. whites repeat these behaviors over and over and over again. And anytime the civil rights movement and black leaders figure out what they're doing and, and find a remedy for it, whites adjust and shift and pivot. Um, and as Michelle Alexander pointed out, the most recent iteration of that is mass incarceration. Yeah, it, it's so interesting. Yeah, it shows up with a new label. That's why the label thing, you know, it just changes, uh, you know, right. so, um, so I don't put the trust in the label. I do uh, incite <laughs> perhaps the behavior or, or the, the mechanism behind it. So and, and that can take on whatever label. Yeah. So uh, that's that's good stuff. So we are here today on Bill Myers Inspires with my guest, uh, the Reverend Dr. John C. Dorhauer, and we're discussing uh, white, uh, white privilege. And we're talking about racism and faith leaders. And we'll be right back in just a moment. You're listening to Bill Myers inspires right here on the inspired choices network. Today, we are facing some of the greatest challenges of our lives from our health to political unrest, the environment, financial uncertainty, and the nation's racial divide. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Bill Myers Inspires as he and his guests take a deep dive into the issues that impact our world with an eye to exploring solutions. Emmy Award-winning actor Bill Myers is an accomplished actor, jazz musician, filmmaker, writer, educator, and speaker. As a biracial man who's both black and white, Bill leverages his background, talent, and voice through creativity, compassion, and connection as activism for social justice to focus on uniting the divide and compelling change. Bill Myers Inspires encourages listeners to look within themselves and take decisive action to make a positive difference. For more information, visit his website, BillMyersInspires.com, and sign in for the latest news and updates. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires here on the Inspired Choices Network. We're here every Friday 
at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you for joining us. And now, let's get back to the conversation. We're back. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires, and I'm here with my guest today, Dr. John Dorhauer. And we are discussing uh, the, the, the current uh, uh, political climate in America and the upcoming election. And we were just discussing the sort of the connection of faith leaders and the Republican Party and the positioning of that at this, at this time. Uh, and it's perplexing to me, John, before we go any further, I just want to throw my understanding uh, at this, which is, mm-hmm. you know, coming up in school, I, I come from a, a Republican family, okay? But these are Lincoln Republicans, you understand? These were black yeah, people who right. were like, it would be unconscionable to be, a member of the Democratic Party because that was aligned with the Confederacy. And so so the role reversal that has occurred um, is is not without notice. And particularly in in a family, particularly, you know, a black family whose roots are deeply Republican. Now it's like that is uh, uh, I you know, it's a it's a very difficult challenge uh to, to weather. And my family still looks at where where they are and kind of going, what in the world happened? You know? So, um, so again, the flip-flop, how labels, it, it takes on a different, uh, you know, I mean, we just switched the label, but the thing seems to persist and, and it keeps manifesting. So that's kind of where we are. And I want to now hand it over to you. So, so evil adapts. Um, it is a, uh, like a virus. It's built to thrive and survive and it will meet every threat and and uh it will adapt and find a way to infiltrate and infect bodies in a new way and there's no question that white power white supremacy white privilege and racism have adapted through the years um when the emancipation proclamation was written and the civil war was won Uh, Reconstruction in the South was effectively dismantled through the 1880s and 1890s. And when we, when the civil rights movement of that era responded, then uh, the lynching started and, and then Jim Crow started and now mass incarceration has started. What's interesting about this political cycle, and I'm Mm. talking about all the way from 2016 to 2020, It's for the first time in my lifetime, a man was elected because he was a racist. And he brought overt racism back into the public sphere. We all remember two, two and a half years ago in Charlottesville, when the white supremacists were marching with tiki torches through the streets and chanting racist and anti-Semitic slurs. And a young woman a day later would be killed peacefully demonstrating for racial equity only to have in the hours following her death, that president say from the bully pulpit of his office, let's be careful to cast blame here. There are good people on both sides. Mm. Even if that's true, 
the differentiation between the goodness demonstrated by those tiki torch carrying white supremacists is markedly different from that young woman who gave her life in the cause of racial justice. Mm -hmm. Even if it's true, in the hours following her death for the president to choose to speak those words, rather than honoring her work as a, a peace organizer and a peaceful protest is utterly unconscionable. There's no defense for what he said. And two weeks ago, on a national stage while debating his opponent for this election, he sounded very clearly the dog whistles calling out the white supremacists mm -hmm. generally and the Proud Boys particularly telling them to stand by. And is it any surprise that a week later, federal agents uncover a plot to kidnap the Democratic, white Democratic governor of Michigan yeah. by white supremacists who were also targeting law agents and threatening bombs going off. Yeah, That was a dog whistle to white supremacists. And what we're seeing, again, there's always been racism throughout my life, but I have never seen a man occupy the highest office of this land and believe that he could overtly perpetuate racist behavior and racist rhetoric. And even though through the decades we've seen a decline in hate crimes, the last four years with each passing year, hate crimes have increased. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's appalling. I, I, I was I was actually had to pull off the road yesterday. I glanced down at a at a at a stoplight and happened to glance at my phone. Uh, and I don't advise anybody to do that. But I did. glance <laughs> down, And that's when I saw uh, that kidnapping plot. And that pulled me off the road because that that's a whole new level or dimension that's something you go see in a movie man i, I right. but this was like real this is what's going on and yes. the other thing that has really dis, distinct struck me as odd is uh this is i, th I believe prior uh, and i believe it was michigan where these uh, uh militia men armed show up yes. and want to enter the building uh this is you know six weeks ago or something or two months ago and you know, the thought that none of these guys are I didn't see any law enforcement anywhere around them as if they were they needed no. to be corralled. But no. these guys have like weapons that are fully loaded <laughs> marching around. And I'm thinking, man, if you just saw not only one or 10 black folk with oh. armed, oh. it would have been open fire. Um, yeah. immediately. So the same justifiable path, open fire, according to white law. Absolutely. And the same and, thing I feel about the, the Kyle Rittenhouse, the young man uh, in yeah. Kenosha that, yep. fired, you know, there is a pass. And, you know, I, I, I think back to uh, Black Panther movement and that sort of thing where you did have an armed presence uh, much of the time uh, where these black men were, were armed. And I'm just thinking, I don't think that would fly today without just immediately being obliterated. And um so yeah, the 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 uh, the contrast is 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 evident. Um, right, and you know we know. I mean that the, the federal agents that uh, that wrote the report on what they uncovered 
uh, with this undercover operation infiltrating this white supremacist organization is that some of the very people involved in this plot to kidnap the Michigan governor were in fact in that state room with their weapons uh, on that day in, in the very incident that you described a moment ago. Same wow. people. Hmm. Um, Case and, in the joint. Case in the joint, right? I mean, they're checking it out. <laughs> yep. And, and I've, I have been present at many peaceful demonstrations um, where on the other side of the street were white supremacists carrying their semi-automatic weapons. In fact, the Republican presidential co uh, uh, event was uh, where Trump was nominated was held a block away from my office. And every day I would walk the streets outside my office just to see what was going on, the pageantry of it all. Uh -huh. And there were white men in battle fatigue carrying semi-automatic weapons every day on the street, just walking down the street as if they were going to the Taco Bell to get their lunch. Wow. Um, and nobody confronted them. And you and I both know that <laughs> a, a group of black men under the same circumstances no. would not have survived. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, you know, it's, man, that, there, there are some, these contrasts uh, are, are very disturbing. And, and the fact yeah. that we, we're looking at them and yet we see completely different things. What I'm looking at are armed men <laughs> going, look, I feel, uh, I feel threatened, not because they're white guys with attitude. I just really feel uncomfortable whenever I am in the presence of people walking around with yeah. automatic weapons. Uh, yeah. You know, I have, you know, my cousin was murdered sometime, you know, uh, 2007. I mean, uh, 15 shots. Uh, he and his girlfriend were murdered in front of their four kids. When I see that kind of activity, it is it 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 it, it creates a palpitation and a, a very much a discomfort. So uh, I, I do not uh, sort of condone or, or feel comfortable in the presence of people walking around with guns. I'm like, well, I'm not carrying one. So it's I'm already in harm's way. I don't know what your agenda is, but it's clearly not the same as mine. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, and, and these guys are, are emboldened more and more so. And I'm yep. concerned, you know, I'm concerned about not only the election business, but what can happen in the aftermath of we are all concerned and we are now training our congregational leaders clergy and lay leaders alike uh, on civil disobedience and peaceful nonviolent resistance if there is not a peaceful transition after the election mm. we will be in the streets and we have no doubt that donald trump will sound the dog whistles and have his minions in the streets mm -hmm. and they will most likely be carrying weapons. And we are preparing faith leaders across this country uh, to be to, to perform acts of peaceful, nonviolent, civil disobedience and resistance. That we're even having that conversation is astounding to me. Yes. That we would be preparing our leaders for what would be the first unsuccessful peaceful transition of power just blows my mind. 
Yeah. But we know we are not going to be on the sidelines if and when that happens. Well, I, uh, I applaud you and, um, and honor you for that level of preparation and, and, and foresight because it, we are in a very different time. I think that we, we can agree there. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump on a break real quick. And uh, mm-hmm. you're li- <laughs> yeah, yeah we're, we're having a great conversation. My guest today, uh, Dr. John Dorhauer, and um, we're talking about racism and faith leaders and uh, our current political climate and uh, an upcoming election. And uh, our thoughts and concerns of, of the people. So um, you're listening to Bill Myers Inspires. We'll be right back in just a moment. Today, we are facing some of the greatest challenges of our lives, from our health to political unrest, the environment, financial uncertainty, and the nation's racial divide. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Bill Myers Inspires as he and his guests take a deep dive into the issues that impact our world with an eye to exploring solutions. Emmy Award-winning actor Bill Myers is an accomplished actor, jazz musician, filmmaker, writer, educator, and speaker. As a biracial man who's both black and white, Bill leverages his background, talent, and voice through creativity, compassion, and connection as activism for social justice to focus on uniting the divide and compelling change. Bill Myers Inspires encourages listeners to look within themselves and take decisive action to make a positive difference. For more information, visit his website, BillMyersInspires.com, and sign in for the latest news and updates. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires. Here on the Inspired Choices Network. We're here every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you for joining us. And now, let's get back to the conversation. We're back. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires. My guest today is Dr. John Dorhauer. Um, and we are having a, a, a pretty great conversation. The, you know, it's so funny because the breaks themselves kind of like a, <laughs> get me in a place where it's like, I'm not really ready to break, but I guess we are. So uh, we've got to handle our business. But um, it's, it's hard to, to take a breath in, in some of these conversations because uh, it, it's so threaded. It's so connected to every fiber of our discourse in this nation. We're not just talking about what happens at Sunday at, on, you know, at church. We're talking about what's happening in the streets. We're talking about what's going on on the television, in the media, what is going on in the hearts and minds of our people and trying to figure out how we can become better people. And that's always some heavy lift. Um, first, yeah. you know, it's heavy lifting. We, we've yeah. got work to do. Uh, I, I'm inspired and do believe that the work is possible. Um, and uh, I believe it's our charge to to see to it that the work is done. Uh, so again, we were talking about the upcoming election and some of the tensions that are 
out. And one of the things I just want to toss it out just for a second, because we were talking about what might happen as far as sort of peaceful transitional power. But I've got to share with you a concern that I have mm-hmm. um, all along, which is let's suggest or let's let's assume that there is a peaceful transfer just for the sake of. So we do the peaceful transfer of power. I am concerned that the former occupant of the yep. White House being free to walk the streets and as incredibly vindictive as he has shown himself to be and spiteful, um, walking the streets with national security <laughs> secrets and information. <laughs> if the risk was not as great before, now with no oversight, what in the world have we unleashed? And, and <laughs> do we think that there would be no, uh, that he would not use or misuse um, the 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 uh, important information uh, to his benefit because everything is about him. It's it's about him. Well, I, maybe I have a couple of things that might calm your fears around that. Please. Uh, first, <laughs> once he leaves office, I don't know for how long he's going to be walking the streets a free man. Uh, he's got a number of uh, criminal charges he's going to be facing, and w- without a presidential pardon, he could well end up in a jail cell somewhere sometime. And the second thing regarding the state secrets that he holds, he has a reputation for not paying attention at any of the intelligence briefings. Um, And I'm not sure how much intelligence he's taking out of the office and storing in his brain cells when he leaves the office. So it would require intelligence, first of all. And that's where where it falls apart. I also think his admirers and his followers are not loyal to him. Um, He is not a man who engenders compassion. Um, And he has said some things that once he leaves office are going to haunt him about soldiers and not understanding the sacrifices that they make and calling them suckers and losers. And my heroes don't get captured and, and on and on and on that in in the light of reflective daylight, folk are going to look back on and realize, hmm. So once he leaves office and doesn't have the power of office to buttress his mania and his homophobia and his racism and his misogyny, I just don't think people are going to feel all that attached to him anymore. Well, I hope that you are right. Uh, I, I really do, because... You know, when we we we've we focus so much on, uh, you know, the the election cycle and then uh, the transfer of power question. But it was always I was like going, OK, but what happens after all that? This guy's dangerous in so yeah. many ways that well, the, the thing that worries me the most. And if if he doesn't get reelected and right now that the polls are showing he doesn't have a great chance of that, but if he doesn't get reelected, what worries me the most um, are the judges that he's appointed, many of them in their 30s and ideologues uh, with a brand of legal interpretation unlike we've ever seen in this country. And they're gonna be sitting on the bench for 35, 40 years. And you're not gonna undo that. And then how much damage has he done to our the relationship with critical allies around the globe. And 
What's the window of opportunity that we have to repair that and say that Trump was just a blip and take us back and trust us? I don't know how easily those relationships can be repaired. And then there are things like the refugee resettlement program, which when he took office, we were bringing in 115, 120,000, 125,000 refugees a year. And he immediately dropped that in half in the first year and down to about 15,000 since and wants to zero it out today. The reason that's a problem is there were five major agencies, including Church World Service, that built the infrastructure that over two or three years followed an immigrant before they could be received as citizens in this country and made sure that they were no risk. Yeah. These were people who spent their life in service to this cause and who understood how to do that work. And when you go from 125,000 to 15,000, then the offices that employed them unemployed them because there was no federal money coming in to support them. Right. And for three years now, they've been out of that work. Even if the new president comes in and it's back up to 125,000, you don't have the infrastructure in place to manage that. Yeah. How do you repair that? Yeah. Those yeah. are the things that scare me. Yeah. There, yeah. There's quite a bit uh, of repair work. That's for sure. Um, many of the institutions have been gutted and, uh, yep. and, uh, so yeah, there, there's definitely and, and a, the a career diplomats and the career ambassadors and the career uh, bureaucrats that run the government that left that just up and left and said, "I'm done. I've had it." Yeah, mm. there is a lot of work to do, John. <laughs> there's a lot of work to do. God love Joe Biden if he if he wins this election, his work is cut out for him. Yeah, he's he's got he's got our support people. if he needs it. Absolutely. Well, John, it has been a joy having you on the show today. And Thank I appreciate you. the conversation. And I think it's very timely and hopefully uh, will benefit the listeners in, in a way that it has benefited me. I, I truly appreciate it. And um, we are uh, coming up on the end of the show. You've been listening to Bill Myers Inspires with my guest, John Dorhauer. Um, tune in next week for another exciting episode. Uh, but we certainly appreciate you tuning in and listening and this is important stuff. And so you have a great week and do everything that you can to lift up humanity and, um, make this place a better place to live. God bless. Thank you for spending your afternoon right here with us at Bill Myers Inspire. Remember, we're here every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Inspired Choices Network. Remember to take time this week to take a breath and look within yourself and figure out how you can make a positive difference in this world. Spread the word, and we'll see you here next Friday. Have a wonderful week.